Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Floor is rising. I am Sabertooth, and with me is Kizu. I'm a professional NFT collector, and Kizu is a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting, and analyzing NFTs. So if you are a creator or collector of NFTs, or you want to be, jump in. The water's warm. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Floor is Rising. Special guest today, we have with us a Dalek, otherwise known as James Marshall, but we'll call him Dalek. He's known for his Space Monkey character. He's a real OG of art and recently into NFTs. Welcome to the show, Dalek. Thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate it. Dalek, tell us, what's the story of how you got into NFTs? started asking questions and reaching out to people I knew who had already been getting involved and, and just wanted to understand it. You know, I think that's one thing when you get into something new is I just wanted to get educated first before I started barreling in with my eyes closed. You know, so I just spent some time, you know, talking to people and researching and reading and following up and checking out platforms and sites and understanding how crypto worked. And then a buddy of mine, Lurk, he came to me one day and was like, look, you know, there's this great platform called Hen, you know, Hick at Nuke, and it's on Tezos and it's very easy. You know, he's like, it's, it, there's no gas. It's very cheap to mint. It's easy to get your work out there. There's a great community, you know, and so that's when I first dipped my toes in. He was setting up clubhouses. There was kind of a group of artists together. I won't know if he put it together, but it was a small group of artists that were kind of getting in this together and including Mumbot and Sam Pearson and some other people. And I think right from the beginning, what I, I liked from that aspect was there was a community behind it. And everybody was sort of figuring it out together. So I realized quickly that I was enjoying that aspect of it, right? It's nice to mint something and it was great to have people buy it. And it was, you know, it was really people in that group who were buying it and supporting each other in the beginning. And, you know, I immediately turned around and took what I earned and, and was buying other people's art. And, you know, it just was really super fun. So that's that's how I got into it. And, and that's kind of what set the tone for me as, as I've gone through this journey. You had a close relationship with Shepard Ferry, the mm-hmm. author of Obey. Um, and you also worked with Takashi Murakami, who's probably the top or most well-known Japanese contemporary artist. Could you tell us a little bit about what drew you to them and their work and how that kind of unfolded for you? It actually goes back earlier than that, right? So I met Shepard when I was working in the skateboard industry out in California in 1996, you know, but I had gotten into graffiti in the early 90s, you know, and I was living in Chicago and painting in Chicago. And, you know, I was going through reading graffiti magazines, you know, that's back what you had to do back then, right? There was no internet. You'd go to the store and you'd get graffiti magazines or you'd get a mail order and, you know, and I was just checking out graffiti from other places. Obviously, I had known about the existence of graffiti. I had, when I was in high school, I had some buddies that were from New York that, you know, were kind of cluing me into what was happening in New York in the 80s. And this will wrap around to the Murakami thing, but I, I went to high school in Japan. So my dad was in the Navy. I lived over there, you know, 10th through 12th grade very much got into that culture, right? Because I grew up on comic book and cartoon culture. So going to Japan and getting into anime and those things was was just an extension of it. 
you know, so I was aware of New York graffiti. I was very into punk rock and hip hop early, you know, stuff with Run DMC and Curtis Blow and Grandmaster Flash and Sugar Hill Gang and, and all that kind of stuff. So all the cultural stuff was there for me. I just, I didn't live in a place where it existed. You know, so as I, I, I moved back to the States and I went to school in Virginia and then I moved to Chicago, you know, obviously Chicago was a hotbed of graffiti and especially in the early 90s. Um, and I, I got fully embedded into the culture and then ended up happening was I ended up reaching out to a guy named T.D. And T.D. ran Undercover Magazine out of New Jersey, New York. And he was actually best friends with Cause. And then this is way, you know, I mean, obviously Cause was a graffiti writer at that time and he was doing his thing, but he was, hadn't even started his journey into what, you know, became, right, with billboards and bus shelters and then, you know, on and on. So those, those guys were actually huge early influences for me and how I developed my graffiti style, how I really became what I became as, as a graffiti writer. And, and that's where, when I moved to California and I started painting in, in the Bay Area, you know, with Mike Giant and some of those guys, and, you know, that's when the graffiti crossed back into the skateboard culture for me. Chris Cycle and Mike Giant both worked at Think Skateboards. That's where they worked. And, you know, Greg Carroll was running that. And so I would go out painting. And again, that was the era of Twist and Amaze and, and you know, Revoke and Saber and all them moved to San Francisco. So it was just insane, the amount of things going on. So the deeper I got embedded into it and the more I've, I've kind of got mentored by these guys, it just kept pushing me to develop my, my character and my style. And I ended up moving. I was good friends with Chris Markovich, who's a professional skater and he wanted me to come move down to San Diego, uh, which is where he lived. And I ended up getting a job at Duff Shoes and the art director was friends with Shepard. And that's how that relationship started. And I think I was just telling someone yesterday, you know, Shepard was the person who introduced me to printmaking. I had never even thought about printmaking. He introduced me to stickers and taught me how to use Illustrator. And again, you, you can't walk into an easier path when your mentors are these, these giants, right? And we're so forthcoming and, and so kind to, to someone who, again, you know, just learning. I was just a student of the game. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of went on. And then when I first, I moved to New York in 2000. And one of the first things I did is I had a buddy up in Boston and I went up there to see the Murakami show that was at the Boston Museum. And this is, I mean, Murakami was getting bigger, but he wasn't huge because when I worked for him, it was still kind of pre his Paris show and we were prepping for that. And it was pre him doing stuff for Louis Vuitton and, and kind of blowing up. And, but I saw the show and, and one thing I was trying to figure out because as I lived in California and Shepard introduced me to people and I started doing group shows at New Image Art and some of these places, you know, Rich Jacobs was curating these move shows, which included everybody, right? Mark Gonzalez and Ed Templeton and Chris Johansson and Barry McGee and on and on and on and on. So, you know, to even be in that crowd and become a part of those shows was huge for me. And, and I, I tried to take advantage, learn what I could, and, but I didn't know how to be a professional artist. It just wasn't in my DNA. 
I just was kind of doing it for fun to blow off steam. And like I said, I had a day job and I was perfectly happy working and doing my thing. And it just kind of kept growing organically. And it reached a point where I knew moving to New York was the first step. But I knew if I was going to become an artist, you know, and try to pursue it as a career that I probably needed to understand how to be a more professional studio artist. And when I saw Murakami's paintings for the first time, I just knew that that's what I was going for, right? The flatness. I mean, it's what I wanted. It's what I had kind of been taught and what I loved about graffiti were these very smooth, clean cut pieces that were, you know, meant to pop off as stickers and, and defining the space monkey as this iconic thing, you know, which became kind of my throw up or, or my, you know, what I would be defined by. So yeah, I saw it and I was like, I need to learn to paint like that. I need to understand how to do that. And I just reached out to him. I had some book and I sent an email and I was happy I was going to go back to Japan. I was fine with that because I'd lived there. I know the language. I understand the culture. And turns out they had a studio in New York. And, you know, I went in there and and I did the same thing, you know, I've always done, man. I, I soaked up everything I could. I asked every question I could. And, and I taught myself, you know, how to how to be a better painter. Was that the uh, Kaikakiki, the Long Island studio that you're talking about? Yeah, it was in, it was in Maspeth. It was technically in... So it was, it was only, I lived in Greenpoint. It was like a 10 minute walk for me every day. And right. it was just a little garage with, you know, probably a thousand square feet and a bunch of Japanese people in there working on the paintings, you know, four or five canvases at a time. And he kind of went back and forth. So he'd be in New York for like a month and then he'd go back to Japan and, you know, but he was always kind with his time. And, you know, I had a lot of great conversations with him and, and I learned a lot from that experience. Right, right. I guess this is also, I mean, obviously you've dropped a lot of names, very illustrious people from that, you know, Chicago, New York, and all the cities that you that you moved through. And I think this is also the time when uh, we had people like uh, Nigo and, you know, like the street fashion, vintage stuff going back and forth, I believe, between Tokyo and New York. And so there was this like exchange, I guess, uh, across skate culture, street fashion, all of that. And these people obviously went on to other collaborations with different artists. But it seems to me that there was, there, there was like a mutual fascination, right? The Americans were like, oh, what's all this cool Japanese stuff going on? And on the, on the Japanese side, they were also like kind of obsessed with American pop culture, obviously, and then trying to see how they could bring parts of that back. If, I, if I'm not wrong, like Nigo in the early days was basically like lugging back suitcases of like early hip hop and stuff like that. And he set up a, a shop that, you know, basically resold it at like insane uh, kind of like prices. Right. So there's a, there's that scene as well. And then Murakami was doing more of a traditional, well, visual art. And I'm wondering during that time, was your Japan connection like a calling card for you among the circles that you that you uh, socialized in or was that something that came a bit later in terms of like oh tokyo is so cool and and all of that yeah i mean it didn't uh, i mean i don't know if it played any kind of role right i mean for me again you know because i lived there and it was just what i was interested in 
you know, I was interested in certain aspects of it. You know, I do remember when Cause would start going, you know, obviously Stash and Futura were were doing, you know, their thing and they were going to Japan all the time. And, you know, Brian would go over there with them and, and which is how he connected in with, with so many people over there. But it just wasn't like, I was so happy just to be in New York. I, I, you know, I was trying to just kind of soak up everything there. And just kind of learn my way, you know, so, you know, I spent a lot of time, obviously, going to Brian's studio, but, you know, I was, I was getting to know and, and spent a lot of time hanging out with Brian McGinnis and Espo and just anybody I could, you know, I was just, everybody was so new and fascinating to me and, and, and I was just trying to absorb it, right? So every person I met, every show I did, I just kept getting pulled off in whatever tangent it took me right so because it's it's just my approach of like i've never had a master plan i don't go like oh i want this to turn into this or go in this direction it's just i just kind of go where the energy is and and kind of what i feed off of and and even though i was into all of that japanese stuff there there was nothing there dramatically calling me to really dive back into it. I, I think that, you know, again, my experience with Murakami wasn't even so much about what he was painting, but how he was painting. The imagery was familiar because, you know, I understood the culture and I understood the references to to anime and kind of, you know, what his path was. But I was way more interested in, in the technical aspects of of learning how to paint that flat and that clean and and understanding how the colors he used and the ways he built his compositions, that's the stuff. I, I think it just was really so wrapped up in learning all the technicals that half the time the visuals for me kind of went by the wayside, you know. At this stage in your career, most associated with the iconic Space Monkey, even your Twitter handle, it's kind of Dalek Space Monkey. In some previous sort of literature, you, you, you know, you've talked about sort of frustration at uh, sort of being only known for that or being trapped by that particular sort of iconography and how you view uh, your relationship with the the space monkey. You know, I think the problem for me early on was because being self-taught and, and, and look, man, I, I probably didn't have the greatest of skill sets. You know, I had, I've always had way more will than talent probably, but when space monkey kind of went from being fun and something I did for graffiti and to doing canvases for people and then going into shows and, and then all of a sudden I'm doing shows of space monkeys. Like it just reached a point where I wasn't, I couldn't develop it anymore. I just didn't have the skill sets to understand like where to take it. And so what happened was I started to feel kind of trapped and frustrated by the fact that it just, it started getting repetitive and I didn't want to just keep repeating myself. I didn't want every show to just be like, Oh, it's, it's more, you know, space monkeys or, oh, they're, they're pink this time instead of blue. Like, you know, that's not going to do anything. And I understood I just couldn't wrap my head around how to develop it anymore, you know. And, and that's sort of where I, I feel like the character almost went backwards for a minute as I was trying to work through it. And I, I think it got it got very stiff. It got very reductionist. It lost a lot of its character. And, and I'm talking probably going into kind of like 04 to 06 range. And I just kind of, I just hit a wall with it. And, and I knew I needed to take a break from it. So, you know, I started down this kind of path of deconstructing it. And then that took me down that long path of, of kind of these geometric explorations and 
which I think was, was way more natural because as soon as I started doing it, as soon as I got away from that kind of central figure, I felt like the work really exploded and became what I always kind of knew it could be. But I just, it became such an exploratory phase that I just kept burning through things and, and trying different ways of, of doing geometric work. And again, it was so much more of a exploration and learning how to use color better, learning how to use scale and depth and, and, and all these basic kind of things that, you know, some artists instinctually know, some learn. And for me, I had to learn it. So it was a good journey and it took me to a lot of new, interesting places and, and it freed me from that. And yeah, it took years. I mean, I probably stopped painting Space Monkey in 2007 and I didn't go back to it until, I mean, I think 2017 is when I, I first started dabbling with it again. And it, it was really just because people were pinging me, you know, about doing it. And, and I didn't really want to do it at the time. And I wasn't into it at first, even the first paintings I, I made of Space Monkey kind of coming back into it, they were flat. And I was just like, well, all right, I ain't going to be doing this very often. And I, I just wasn't feeling it. So I, I don't, you know, it's just funny, man. Like, I don't know what clicked. Like people kept pinging me, you know, and there were people who at that point, you know, were nostalgic for Space Monkey. And my buddy, Andrew Hosner, who runs Think Space, wanted to do a show. And I told him, please, I don't want to do it. It's just going to piss me off. And he pinged me and, and we did it. And even then, I just, I wasn't into it. And then one day, I, I think there's just some stuff I was doing with the geometric work and something clicked and, and I just transitioned back into it. And uh, it's just been different. Like, I, I think that whatever it took, I finally found the formula that made it interesting again for me, that made it exciting and, you know, made me want to continue doing it. So look, the, you know, people know me for that, right? So it is a big piece of my identity, just like the Dalek name it was my graffiti name, you know, and, and that's what people know me by. And, and it's, is it branding? Sure. But it's really just what people know. And, and the same with Space Monkey. It's just what people are familiar with. And, and they go, oh, that's, you know, Dale's creation. And that's what he's known for. And, but obviously anyone who knows what I do knows that it, that it goes far beyond that. And, and now that I've been able to kind of take it in some new directions um, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of working and, and seeing where things go. Given your, um, your experience with Murakami and I'm, I'm not sure if anyone has really pointed this out before, it, it seemed to me that there wasn't an explicit connection drawn to it, but I guess given that Murakami also has a character that's, it's more of a mouse, I guess, like a riff off Mickey Mouse, um, Mr. D.O.B., and of course, the space monkey is more of a monkey. But of course, I think visually, there's more than a slight resemblance. I mean, first of all, they were totally independent of each other, right? I mean, D.O.B. Is, is one of Murakami's early, earliest characters. I had no clue who he was until I saw the show. I mean, literally, I had no clue who he was until I saw the show at Boston Museum. And that was in 2000. I think that's when that show was. But I mean, the space monkey had developed completely on its own, right? But I do think the commonality with all of these things 
is the riff on Mickey Mouse. And right, and Mickey Mouse is a global iconic thing, right? And and it represents so many different things to so many different people. And so again, you could go on and on and on. I mean, Slick and Ron English and Gondek and Warhol and, and on it doesn't matter, you know, Basquiat. The, the amount of people that have riffed off of Mickey Mouse, it's insane, right? And, you know, again, go back and look at, you know, classic cartoon culture. I mean, one thing, you know, I get from people is it reminds me of Itchy and Scratchy. And I'm like, well, yeah, man, but Itchy and Scratchy is another riff on classic cartoon cat and mouse, right? So you can look at Tom and Jerry or look at any of these things. And again, it it all feeds off of each other it all bleeds off of each other so you know i think it's just one of those things where it's just it's a coincidence right that this is the character he had and i don't even think when i went to the show at boston museum there was much of of dob in it like you know most of what i remember were those giant color fields there were all those paintings with those huge uh kind of explosive clouds right and then just these fields of mushrooms. Mm. So DOB wasn't even very central in that show. I just remember what they reminded me of, especially those at that point, because of the scale and, and some of the composition was almost anime riffs on classic Japanese painting styles, right? So they had that kind of, of grandeur and feel to them. And I mean, that's really what I, what I looked at when I saw them. So, yeah, look, I, I think it is just a coincidence. You know, I mean, certainly I, I showed him my work when I worked with him and he was like, oh, this is super fun. And, you know, he he was digging it. He, he was never like, oh, you, you know, this is too familiar, too similar. Or, I think it's just he gets it. Everybody has kind of gotten that this, this shit just kind of happens because we're all looking at the same source material to some extent you know in the grand picture we have this idea of closely or maybe closer knit communities with nfts and depending on the platform you know there's a there's an ethos of collaboration there's a very strong kind of like mutual support network people you know helping each other out artists obviously reaching out directly to their fan base and their collector base but in terms of like fostering that community and kind of participating. Well, one of the things I think is that, you know, with with everything happening on Twitter and Discord, it's like this like global conversation, right? But it flows like nonstop. And if you miss the thread or if you're not on your phone like eight hours a day, you miss what's going on or, or things like that. And <clears throat> for example, like if if you if you aren't entirely like tuned in all the time, I feel like there's a sense in which you might be marginalized or kind of like not really plugged in 100% into that community. What do you see as the challenges in terms of uh, maintaining that community and that kind of um, rapport with that your, your tribe, in a sense, that maybe was not the case with those communities that you were a part of 20 years ago? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's a great question. You know, I, I think, right, the fact that it's online and accessible, I think, is what makes it easy, right? I mean, in the sense of it's a place people just kind of, they come in of, they come out of, 
you know, you, you try to build your threads so that if people do just pop in, you know, and, and that's, I'm, I'm in a bunch of discords and they're all like that. Right. So people can kind of come in and get the recaps. You know, we try to make sure we know who's coming in the chat. And, and of course we've, we've nurtured a culture so that my mods and, the, and not just the mods, but the people who are an everyday part of the community take on these roles of, of just kind of bringing people up to speed when they get there. If I'm not on there, you know, keeping, keeping me in the loop, but it, it really isn't difficult, but I think you have to have the right personality for it. I mean, for me, it's, it's easy, right? I can get online. I can go, not only do I run my own discord, but I'm a community manager for another discord called chains. I I'm setting up to be a mod for Valiant Comics Discord. I'm, I'm constantly in eight or nine other discords for, you know, friends of mine. And you just have to mentally have the capacity to, to block out time for that. And I know there's times where I have to focus there and there's times where I have to do other things. And, you know, but we really try to, to, to focus on nurturing community so that the people who come in there just continue to, to further it. So I don't have to sit there and do this by myself, which again is the very nature of a community, right? I don't have to go, this is my space and I control it. You know, I say, I trust my community to follow the guidelines and, and, and build it out and take care of people. And it's more about just showing art. It's, it's about, you know, creating a place where people feel safe, right? A place where people can go if they've had a rough day at work and they just want to fucking get some shit off their chest or place where people can share projects they're working on or things they're excited about. And I think to me, it, it feeds right back into that old school organic thing. It's just, I don't have to, you know, I'd meet one person, they'd introduce me to someone else. And that in person would tell me to come to something. I'd go to some event and I'd meet three other people. And then it would slowly work like that. Now it's just at hyperspeed where I can flip back and forth between eight communities and talk to 300 different people all in an instant. And for me, it, it feeds my drive to keep doing what I'm doing because it, it allows me to kind of extend past the art. And I think that's important, man. Like I've never been a person who I make art because I love making art and I like what I'm doing because I love sharing it with people. And I'm, I love that they get stoked on it. Like that's more important. The process of making the art and how the art's received is is what makes me happy right so being in a in a space and and being able to communicate with people and feed off that energy inspires me to go back and and push what i'm doing and and work harder and and kind of dive back in but yeah man discord is an incredibly cool tool because it's it's direct contact right there's no algorithms like instagram's a pain in the ass twitter's a pain in the ass they they all want to kind of guide and dictate and and hold back and it you don't it starts off fine and then as you you go along you get less and less engagement and and there's less and less personal relationship building you know and so discord made it great to go in and just be like man i can talk to anybody i want directly there's no algorithms there's no requirements there's no just come in hang out and uh you know, we'll kind of see where this thing goes. At this point in time, the majority of the NFT market is collectibles. 
essentially, uh, and, and mostly sort of profile picture collectibles. Do you think that is something that is a, is a, is a function of, of just the current state of the market or, and, and that will, will change? Or, or, or do you think this is something that, will, that is kind of unique you know, to, to NFTs? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's an interesting thing, right? You know, I think as, you know, my buddy was just telling me, you know, they all went down to Miami, Basel. I didn't get to go down this year. But look, I think more real life art collectors, you know, and people that are into that, it, it it's taking more time maybe for transitioning, right? So if you kind of, and again, I'm not an expert, but if you look at the origins of of kind of NFTs and crypto in this space and, you know, all these 10K projects. And, and again, I, I like a lot of them and, and I own pieces from, from different projects because again, to me, it's fascinating because it is different than the traditional art route, right? So if you want to start with the basics and just say the fact that there's a secondary market and artists get these royalties over time, obviously that's a huge game changer for any artist. Are the people there yet that fully get art versus a PFP project, they, they might not all be here yet. You know, I do find that a lot of people that come into the space aren't familiar with my history and my career, right? They're, they're new and they kind of think it's just, a, you know, an NFT project and they don't understand what's behind it. But again, that's where you, you try to educate people and show them and you know, then they go, oh, shit, I had no clue that there was all this history behind it. You know, but one thing I'll say, and, and I do think it'll happen. Man. Look, I think they're all going to coexist in harmony. I don't think 10K PFP projects are going anywhere. And I think the idea that these projects can build themselves out and, and kind of do what they're doing, I think some of them are going to be great and they're going to change the way the economy works, right? I mean, if People can buy things or play games and earn passive income and, and engage, you know, in gamification and tokenization and all these things. It's completely life-changing. I talked to my buddy, runs some Axie team out of the Philippines, and he's like, yo, they make more money playing Axie than they ever could work in jobs. And I'm like, yo, that that that's a prime example of how these things can change people's lives in, in really serious and dramatic ways. So I want to see that, right? Like whether it's virtual worlds or, you know, games and kind of earn as you play, whatever it is, I think there's a place for everything. And I think that art will continue to grow and be, be front and center. And I think those people will, you know, I've had some people that followed me and, and bought prints and toys and paintings for years. And some of them were hesitant to come over. You know, they were very unsure what NFTs were. They, they, why do I want this JPEG on my phone? I want a print or a painting to hang in my house, right? And why am I going to pay this kind of money for it? And again, it's an education process and it's showing them, hey, look, you know, this is such a large ecosystem and there's so many pieces to this puzzle. And it's so early on that, this isn't about just buying a JPEG. It's about understanding a technology and getting involved in something now that isn't going anywhere, right? NFTs aren't going anywhere. Digital real estate and, and metaverses and gamification, and not, it's all going to become the norm. So again, 
get yourself educated, stick your, stick your toe in, learn your way around. Don't be afraid of it. And again, as Coinbase and, and crypto.com and all these giant platforms are, you know, build their own systems. They already have a huge flood of people that haven't come into the NFT space that will. And then you have to remember what small percentage of the people on earth are in the crypto space. And soon crypto and NFTs, they'll have, you won't need crypto to buy NFTs. You won't need a wallet. You won't need all these things because they're going to bring it to you. And I guarantee you, whether it's Facebook or Shopify or this, that, or the other, they're, they're, they're going to be household things in, in five years. So again, it's, it's endlessly fascinating and it's, it's such a cool space to, to learn. And Again, by nurturing community and, and helping people, and I feel like I'm in no rush. I, I don't. There's no finish line I need to get to. There's, you know, I'm like I'm just going to keep exploring what I'm doing and take care of the people that believe in me. And you know, wherever it goes is is where it goes. You know, I'm wondering, like, what are you most kind of like wary or cautious about in terms of? the way in which these countercultures, subcultures are going to develop. I mean, one example, for example, is um, the way in which like the CryptoPunks went very quickly from, you know, something that was given away for free and they had this community to, you know, Visa buying one. You know, So you have this kind of like corporatization of the space. And as far as I know, I think a lot of the OG graffiti street artists, that was precisely what they were against, right? A lot of the, the early work graffiti writers and stuff, they were basically statements against, you know, state control, capitalism, surveillance societies, things like that, right? So there's a way in which I think everyone is like, oh, well, let's all jump on the bandwagon. So I'm just curious to hear from a veteran like yourself who you know has, has had experience with that that kind of history but today sounds like he's very kind of optimistic in general about how it's going to play out in the future yeah look man i mean look these are great questions but you know here's what i'd say man first of all i think most of those countercultures were more about having a voice right i mean yeah if you're marginalized by mainstream society right then you you want to find it. So you have a bunch of people who are generating art in the streets because that's where they live. And, and galleries and things like that are, are so far from them. It's not part of their world. And they have this, this canvas and they have this desire to create art. And, and so, you know, on the most instinctual level, that's what that was about. You know, it's we want our voices to be heard. We want to be seen. We don't want to be buried and, and, and left for dead. I think that's what punk rock and, and hip hop and all of that was about. It was about people getting together and, and understanding that mainstream culture isn't going to provide you what you want. So we're going to create our own culture and we're going to create our own world and do our own thing. And, and we don't need them. So even if it's making commentary and, and, and even if there is that aspect of, hey, this isn't what we're about, right? That I don't think innately that corporization of anything, I mean, look, everything's corporatized, right? I mean, it's, it's and 
Every street artist I know is on Instagram. It's, it's as corporate as it gets. It doesn't stop anybody from doing what they're doing. And I think what has happened with social media and with NFTs or anything is you don't, you, you're not relying anymore, right? It becomes more of a meritocracy where you can put yourself out, you can control your own message, you can reach the people you want to reach and you can interact with people how you want and you can make what you want and sell it where you want to who you want, how you want. And so what other people do or don't do is irrelevant. I don't give a fuck if Visa owns a punk. Like they, Lord knows what they own, you know, but what matters is, is how individuals are able to, to empower themselves. Man, I, I see a lot of artists on, on Hen and OpenSea that are, that are people from countries that, and they, they would never stand a chance, but they're, they're getting on a global stage and they're, they're, they're able to build their brand and find an identity for their art. And I think it's encouraging more people to come out and, and show their creativity and understand that there's a path for it. So to me, I, I don't see anything right. I mean, there's, there's scammers and there's assholes and there's rug pull projects and there's everything under the sun, man. But again, welcome to planet earth. There's a bunch of dicks here and it's up to people that, that are cool to try to nurture a positive culture and, and, and lift people up. So to me, I don't see anything but positive aspects as far as how this is empowering individuals to change their own lives not concerned with what Zuckerberg does or what Google does or Apple. They're all going to get in space. They're all going to get their piece of the pie because that's what they do, you know? But again, I, I'm talking to you on an iPhone and I got an Apple laptop in front of me. Like, you know, it's just life. I'm not, I don't hate Apple. I don't have a problem with them, but I'm not going to agree with everything they do, but I'm not also going to let my life be affected by shit that's so far out of my reach and it has nothing to do with how I exist. I'm going to try to use what I do to affect those people I can and encourage people and, and, and try to educate and create positivity and, and, and lift people up. And I think that to me is the greatest aspect of, of digital currencies, of NFTs, of all, all this is, a, a, a larger scope to allow more people to express themselves and to directly benefit from it instead of being funneled through these things where they, they don't have a choice and they get picked off branch by branch. Right. Dalek final question before we finish the episode, who is your favorite artist? You know, if I really had to go back and, and just say, you know, is there, is there one artist that I couldn't live without? You know, it's, it's, it's hard to say, man. It, it would probably be, I think the one thing I love looking at the most is, is Jack Kirby. I think Jack Kirby will forever be the true king. You, you just can't, you know, he's not a fine artist, but you, you just can't match the, the quality and the level of work that dude turned out over his career. And again, the cultural impact his creations had. So you know, to me, that's that's part of what I look at. And, and that's where I think pop cultural stuff is far more important because it has a larger reach. Um, so if I had to pick one, man, that, that's who I'd go with today. Awesome. Delic, thank you for joining us on this episode of Floors Rising. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you for joining me for this episode of Boys Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, follow, and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor Is Rising. You can reach out to us, send us a question, and just send us a DM on Twitter at Floor Is Rising.